Welcome to PS Editor's Podcast, where we engage PS contributors and other experts on some of the most pressing issues of our time. I'm Greg Bruno, an associate editor at Project Syndicate in Prague. Today, we're off to England. Freedom from want has been an avowed goal of the international community ever since U.S. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt made it one in January 1941. And yet, poverty remains a major human development challenge. Nearly 11% of humanity lives on less than $1.90 a day, and poverty alleviation is woefully uneven. Asia has made significant progress in recent years, while roughly half of the world's extreme poor, some 400 million people, live in sub-Saharan Africa. Education, agriculture, transportation, and healthcare, they all have a role to play in anti-poverty efforts. But some scholars say that another aspect of poverty, the sense of shame that it imposes, receives far less attention than it should. As my guest today has argued, the psychosocial side of poverty must be addressed. Katie Rulin is a development economist by training, and she is the co-director of the Center for Social Protection at the Institute of Development Studies in Brighton, England. She has spent years studying the dynamics of poverty and assessing social protection policies. Let's give her a call. Hi there, this is Katie. Hi Katie, thanks for joining us on PS Editor's podcast today. Good morning, good to be with you. So uh, let's get right to the conversation. You've studied what you call the poverty shame policy nexus. Can you talk a little bit about what that is? Uh, yes, absolutely. Well, um, it brings together three different concepts as the, as the idea says. So it's talking about poverty um, in relation to, to feelings of shame and also how policy and primarily policy that tries to reduce poverty interacts with that, both in terms of reducing poverty, but then also the, um, the feelings and emotions of shame. And it's particularly that third aspect that um, I think has been uh, overlooked quite a bit. Uh, and so where um, uh, my area of work is and uh, trying to get a better understanding and also trying to argue that we need to pay uh, more attention to the link between poverty shame and particularly the role of policy uh, in breaking the cycle between poverty and shame. So it's interesting because this, this issue that you've written quite a bit about um, in the last number of years, but also throughout your career, is not necessarily a new issue. Um, the Nobel laureate Amartya Sen wrote quite a bit about it. But even more interesting, I think, is that Adam Smith actually wrote about the idea of uh, having, um, a, he wrote that the good life requires a linen shirt, not to stay warm, but to avoid, quote, the shame uh, of not wearing a linen shirt. Um, how is, is the shame poverty nexus manifesting today if we've been talking about it and aware of it for such a very long time? Yes. Well, yes, absolutely. It's interesting that the, uh, the, the notion of shame has come up in, in key literature uh, and has been brought up by key um, scholars and academics throughout history for over a long period of time, and yet it's really not come to the fore in discussions around poverty. Um, in terms of how it manifests itself today, I think that very much depends on where you are. Uh, so Adam Smith, uh, Smith was talking about linen shirts back in 1776. Uh, in some areas, in the world that might still be very much uh, what is a characteristic of poverty and if, if you do not 
have uh, a certain type of clothing or are not able to dress properly, that can be a great source of shame that is um, affiliated to poverty. But in other contexts, like say in the UK where I am, um, it might be much more to do with participation in, in uh, society and doing things that other people also do. Um, so it, my, a lot of my work is also related to children. And so what might be relevant for children and their families is the ability to go on school trips, for example, um, and that costs money. Uh, and for unfortunately, for quite a few families, is out of reach. Uh, so not being able to go along with the other kids in class uh, on the annual trip might be a source of shame here that is associated with poverty. Yeah, interesting. Staying in the UK for a moment um, and how shame uh, and the poverty nexus manifest differently in different parts of the world. Uh, I was looking at a book that Robert Walker from Oxford put together called The Shame of Poverty, and he quotes some numbers where he asks people in uh, different countries, and in, in this example, India and the UK are, are the two different places, uh, wondering whether, whether they agree with the statement that it's humiliating to receive money uh, without having to work for it. And in India, the percentage of people that said yes was higher than in the UK. Uh, which I thought was kind of an interesting uh, observation in the relationship, perhaps, between um, how governments interact with people uh, on issues related to uh, poverty alleviation. Yes, um, but I actually think, in terms of comparing the UK and India, that's the UK comes out favorably because it means that a lower number of people find it a problem um, in terms of humiliation to receive money from the government um, without having to work for it, but because they are in a um, tough situation um, and because they are citizens in a country and feel that the government should help them out. Um, and so in the UK, we've had a longer history of government taking up its responsibility to care for those who need it. Uh, and that's actually our right. It's a basic human right um, that we have a uh, basic level of security, a basic level of income. And so a government has a responsibility to uh, act on that and to uh, fulfill or make sure that people are able to meet those rights. So the fact that people in the UK are more comfortable to receive welfare than they might be in India uh, without having any jobs attached or without having any condition attached um, in, in order to receive that money, I think comes to show that um, uh, people are more aware of their rights and feel more comfortable to, um, to exercise their rights as well. Uh, which might not be the case yet in India and in, indeed in many other places, simply because um, in many places the government doesn't uh, afford that right. Of course, there is a lot of discussion in the UK and, and really in the whole of Europe or in uh, the global north uh, about welfare and about policies that help people in poverty uh, with or without conditions. And I do think that we are not quite heading the right direction in terms of the shame associated with that policy. Um, but it does say something about differences uh, between different countries and people's feelings in terms of being able to receive support with dignity. Let's stay with India for a moment. Suicides have been increasing among farmers, and reports suggest that shame associated with poor harvests has been partly to blame. Obviously, that's tragic, but it's also illuminating because it suggests that shame can discourage rather than motivate personal attainment. When is that the case, do you think? So there's quite a lot of literature, particularly from the field of psychology, um, 
that really uh, quite clearly delineates different uh, emotions and shame being one of them, but also quite clearly distinguishing them from feelings such as or emotions such as shame, uh, sorry, as guilt or embarrassment or even humiliation and shame being quite um, powerful emotion in the sense that it almost always leads to negative coping strategies. Um, so the way in which shame is framed in the psychological literature is around how you perceive of yourself. Um, and that's mostly negative. So you perceive of yourself as a as a bad person. You internalize the things that uh, the bad things that happen to you and fully attribute them to yourself and as your person. You have a negative evaluation of yourself. Um, and that then um, can lead to negative coping mechanisms, um, such as withdrawing or avoiding um, difficult situations, interactions with others, uh, or at the opposite end of the scale, there might be some uh, aggression or attack or blaming other people to try and uh, you know, negotiate the feelings of shame that you have in association with, with bad things in your life. So I wonder if you think when a government succeeds or does well in alleviating poverty, they are taking the shame equation uh, into consideration. And I'm thinking in particular of China and its success, dramatic excess in uh, reducing poverty levels um, during the reform period and the government really being seen as a protector of the people. Was shame a factor, do you think, in, in the success there or in, in governmental success elsewhere? I think it certainly helps when... Um governments do not uh, shame their citizens for the poor situation that they might be in or when they live in poverty. And unfortunately, um, that's not often the case. Uh, often that happens implicitly rather than explicitly. Um, but very, uh, in very many instances, we see a situation, a context wherein poor people are blamed for the situation that they're in. So if there is an explicit government intervention that counteracts that, I think that can be really powerful. Um, but in, term of, in terms of governments trying to address shame associated with poverty, I think that's often a positive byproduct, and even maybe so in, in China. So the focus is on alleviating poverty in its, maybe it's mostly its material aspects, because that's something quite specific that you can focus on. You can focus on increasing incomes. You can focus on getting children into school, focus on improving living conditions or housing conditions. It's much more difficult to try and alleviate shame or on the flip side of that, try and promote dignity, self-respect and self-esteem. Um, so I think governments and policies have sort of stayed away from that because it's much more difficult to address, but also because there's been this thinking that if we alleviate poverty, then the rest will follow. Um, and I think there is truth to that to some extent, but only if that comes with a real, um, or if that happens within a context whereby poor people aren't blamed for the situation that they're in. Um, and so there is a general level of respect and dignity for all people in society. So moving into kind of the solutions now conversation, where do we stand, uh, where does the human development community stand 
in addressing what the sustainable development goals might suggest is poverty alleviation for all by 2030 if shame is not properly integrated into the solutions i think slowly um the this the conversation around shame or psychosocial aspects of poverty is uh, moving up on the agenda but it's certainly not part of the sdg1 uh, as it was put um, um, together and agreed on in 2015. Um, and my argument is that I do think it's very important to talk about the psychosocial aspects of poverty in, a, in order to be able to really reduce poverty. And that's because um, shame is an intrinsic component of poverty. So over the last few decades, we've had a great transition in terms of thinking about poverty, mostly from a monetary point of view. So how much income someone has towards including other dimensions. So multidimensional poverty, thinking about education, access to healthcare, thinking about um, what kind of roofs or wall materials um, your your house has. So to look at it from a more comprehensive perspective and certainly talking about the social de uh, sustainable development goals, um, that shift from only focusing on monetary poverty to also including multidimensional poverty has been integrated. But we're lacking a focus on um, um, the psychosocial elements. Um, and like uh, you said, Amartya Sen has, very, has already pointed out um, in the 1970s that shame is actually a core component of absolute poverty um, and so it undermines dignity, it undermines people's lives, it really undermines their quality of life so we should take it into account uh, as part of poverty itself. But then the second component which um, is why I think we should look more closely at the psychosocial elements of, sh uh, of, of poverty in, in order to reduce it is because there is this instrumental role that shame or the flip side of that positive feelings of, of self-esteem and self-confidence have in terms of moving out of poverty. So as I mentioned before, shame is mostly uh, goes mostly with very negative coping strategies. And so it can really trap people in poor situations um, if they feel they don't have the, the power to take action, to take positive action, to start a new business or to work on their uh, harvest or to, um, you know, build something together. Uh, so in terms of moving out of poverty, uh, paying closer attention to these issues is very important as well. Mm. So when we have a, a challenge that manifests itself so differently around the world uh, in different countries and different economic situations, uh, and yet we're talking about kind of a one-size-fits-all solution as identified through SDG1, how do you square that circle? Um, are we do, do we need specific targeted areas uh, and solutions? Uh, is this a structural change from the top down? Does it take individual government action, terminology change, all of the above? Mm. Yes. Um, I think part of the reason why it's not been taken up so much in policy or in goals is because it is so difficult to develop policies for. Um, the SDGs don't necessarily put down solutions for poverty, uh, but state uh, the goals that we would like to achieve and eradicating shame could be one of them. Um, but any 
uh, response to that or any way of addressing it needs to be absolutely needs to be country specific, but even much more so um, specific to the people who receive the support. So there is no size, no one size fits all. I think that holds across whatever you're trying to do in terms of reducing poverty, whether that's income poverty or multidimensional poverty or even the psychosocial elements of poverty. And I think we do have quite an agreement around that. There are models that we see uh, that are quite popular around the world that are being used around the world, but all being adapted to their specific context. And I think we we need to um, uh, test some of those models in terms of what they can do around shame. And I do a lot of work on social protection, which is partly around giving people cash transfers or giving people income or economic support, but also increasingly so focuses on additional uh, advice, additional coaching, additional mentoring to, on the one hand, give people skills that they might need and knowledge that they might need. But you could also use those kinds of interventions to tap into some of the psychosocial issues around poverty um, that could work in, in a positive way. Yeah, I, from a personal experience, having lived in the UK um, just recently, I was quite impressed, actually, with how the UK handles integration and, and uh, social issues and provides training and doesn't necessarily, at least from my very uh, cursory view, seem to tie uh, the, the, the social um, types of support that it provides people that need it in ways that, that the United States, for instance, does. In order to receive money, you have to work or you have to try to find work. Um, and if you can't find work, then you know, food stamps, for instance, might be jeopardized or um, mm. there's more of a, a connection, I think, to poverty as kind of your own problem and your own fault in the United States that I didn't necessarily see in the UK. Um, a very, um, unsci- yeah. a very unscientific observation. Um. <laughs> yes, no, but uh, I mean, a very valid observation. And I think in relation to the U.S., um, that's probably a, a fair one. I have to say, uh, just from from uh, a U.K. perspective, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, we are moving much more towards uh, uh, conditional welfare and punitive system. And more generally, there's a long-standing um, context within which people receiving welfare benefits are really seen as uh, almost second-rank citizens. Um, so, And this is not just government. This is also the interplay with media, with public perception. Um, people receiving welfare benefits are often portrayed as scroungers. There is a whole uh, genre on, on uh, television that's called poverty porn, where people are portrayed as uh, largely lazy and, and misspending the, the money on alcohol or other things that they might not necessarily need or other people think they might not need. So I think just purely looking at the, at, uh, um, the debates and what's happening in the UK right now, unfortunately, it's not that uh, that positive and I think there's a lot that the government could do and also media could take responsibility for in terms of doing away with stereotypes that really feed into the shame that, of poverty that people feel and the shame of um, trying to build up one's own life because constantly you have to push back against this negative public perception that you're in this situation because it's your own fault and when you receive support from government um, uh, that makes you dependent, that makes you somehow lazy. Um, So that has really negative effects on people. Uh, You've just burst my bubble. 
my, my <laughs> so ignorance that... bubble. Thanks so much. <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, well, it's something, I mean, it's something that we have to be very conscious of, even when we develop policies in um, uh, low-income countries. So we work a lot in, in Africa and Southeast Asia, and um, there is um, – there is no point, I think, developing policies whereby people are given material support, but it's done in such a way that people are felt to, uh, uh, you know, to be guilty of receiving that support. Um, sort of the government handing it over, or anybody else handing over that support, and saying, "Well, but you should know, you really should be main, be able to make it on your own." And also with this support, if you don't make it now, that really is your own fault. We are giving you the tools. Uh, now you should be able to make it. Uh, and, I, and, and I would like to point this out also because that's a downside of this focus on building people's self-confidence and building people's self-respect. I think it's crucial, um, but we should also make sure that we don't see it as the silver bullet because there's a risk there that if you focus entirely on empowering people in that way, you essentially say, now it's up to you. And so we might be in a situation, say, somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, where there are no schools, where there are no jobs, where there is no market, but we've built people's um, self-confidence around things, their skills and their knowledge, and we sent them off into a context where there is nothing that they can do with um, their skills and their knowledge and their positive emotions that they have uh, and to then later on tell them, well, it was your own fault, you didn't make it. Um, so we any time have to keep in mind uh, the individual and what we build up at individual level and, and household level and the structure in which this happens and the structure very much needs to be in place for poverty to be reduced as well. Well, that was really enlightening, Katie. Thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you very much for having me. It was really interesting to have this conversation. That was Katie Rulin, co-director of the Center for Protection at the Institute of Development Studies. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and review our podcast and subscribe on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Until next time, I'm Greg Bruno.